Genesis chapter 20, 1 through 18. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me himself, she is my sister? And she said herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told him all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given to your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Good morning. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, um, my name is Caleb Wolf. I'm one of the members here at Proclaim. And I've been given the opportunity to share from Genesis 20 by Cody this week. Um, but before we get into today's passage, I want you all to bear with me. Um, I want to do a little bit of a study on the life of Abram turned Abraham thus far. I know that recap may seem unnecessary right now. But I think it's really important for us to truly get to the heart of what this passage is trying to say. So as Cody said before, 
the um, book of Genesis as a whole is really about how God keeps his promises. In chapter 12, Abraham's called out of his homeland to go where God will show him and bless him and through him bless all people. And Abraham obeys. But during a famine soon after, he also in fear tells Pharaoh that Sarah, his wife, is his sister. And Pharaoh takes her into his house and is afflicted with plagues because of it. So far, it's not really going too well for Abraham. He's called to be a blessing to all people, and he's brought down a curse on a people instead. In chapters 13 and 14, though, we see Abram let Lot choose the land that he wants to live in rather than demanding what God has promised him before his time. He risks his life to rescue Lot and even wicked men from the hands of a powerful king, but refuses any of the spoils, trusting in God to provide for him in ways that bring God the glory rather than him. God continues to show up to Abraham and reveal his plan and how he will provide and keep his promises to him and promises him a son. But in chapter 16 through the first half of 18, Abraham again, like in Egypt, tries to provide what God has promised in his way rather than God's. He has a son with Sarah's servant, since it seems in his mind and in the mind of his wife that God cannot provide through her. That created a huge, huge mess and some serious family issues. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. Um, He actually doubles down on his promises, continuing his covenant with Abram by setting him and his people apart through the covenant of circumcision and changing his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. God promises him a son specifically through Sarah within the next year, despite how impossible that seems. And Abraham once again is immediately obedient even to this difficult commandment of circumcision. God follows this grand revelation by visiting Abraham and Sarah, sharing a meal with him, But during that time, it's also revealed Abraham doesn't quite understand some aspects of who God is, like his justice, his mercy, and his wrath. And God wishes to show those things to him so that he may instruct his offspring to live according to true righteousness and justice. And finally, in the last couple of chapters, God has displayed those at Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're left with Abraham looking down in the valley, and smoke billowing up like a furnace. At best, Abraham's life thus far has kind of been back and forth on his trust of God. And these aren't little mistakes with little consequences either. These have had some major ramifications, some of which we still see to this day. However, God has been faithful to Abraham to keep his promises and guide him back on course through them. So part of the reason I want us to understand this greater context is it's easy to look at today's passage and see it just as another example of Abraham doubting God. But what we miss is that this doubt has led to an act that seems to put a firm roadblock in what God has promised. 
One could argue that in Egypt the first time, Abraham was trying to, in his power, preserve the promise to lead him somewhere else and bless others. You could also argue his failure with Hagar was him trying to fulfill God's promise to give him a son outside of that time and way. But in today's passage, God has clearly told Abraham the time and the way that he has planned to keep his promise of giving him a son. And yet Abraham chooses to act in direct opposition to that plan out of the fear of man, placing both him and Sarah in a position where it seems like they have messed it up too badly for God to be able to fulfill his promise. Many of us find ourselves in the same position at some point in our lives. Maybe you haven't yet, and I pray you don't. But we should keep in mind, Abraham doesn't mess up quite this badly until he's 99. We hope to continue to be sanctified until we die. But the reality is that for some of us, our worst sins may not be behind us. Sin patterns that have not been addressed rear their heads again after decades of silence. And unlike when we sinned in the past, it seems like our choices have finally driven us into the ditch, that we can't get back on the road, that we've sacrificed God's purpose for our life on the altar of self-preservation and our own desires. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography or an affair, Maybe it's cheating to get that promotion at work. Maybe it's how you respond to a major loss in your life by turning to a bottle. Whatever the situation is, we feel our lack of faith has brought us to a place with no way forward. But the good news and our main takeaway from this passage is this. God still keeps his promises despite our worst Let's break down this passage a little so that we can see this in its fullest light by starting with what I'm going to call the royal mess. Our passage today opens with a line that out of context doesn't really seem to have much meaning. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb. This is meant to remind us of way back in chapter 12, when that drought happened and he went toward Egypt, when it says, and Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. In today's passage, decades later, after having gone through so much, Abraham is physically walking the same way he did the last time he was tempted to lie to a king to preserve his life. But Abraham's grown so much. He's 99 now. His name has changed his wife is 90, surely that specific temptation isn't going to come up again. And if it did, of course he's going to respond right this time, right? Well, it does, and he doesn't. And apparently Abraham was right about the fact that his wife is still so beautiful that she would catch the king's eye. But he once again is wrong in how he handled it. This time is much worse, though. If and when Abimelech finds out what Abraham has done and retaliates, Abraham could lose everything, including his life. 
But further than that, in context again, Abraham and Sarah have just been promised a son of their own within the next year. Abraham has put himself and his wife in a situation where they cannot be together during the probably three to four month period he has for her to get pregnant in order to deliver when God said she would. Furthermore, the original audience would have been in disbelief because Abimelech is a king of what will become the Philistines. The very same people they're being told in the wilderness to go and wipe out. The original readers may have been mulling over the shocking implications of this their first time hearing this story. What if I'm not really a child of Abraham, but a child of Abimelech? What if Ishmael really is the only true son of Abraham? And Abraham messed up God's plan to provide Isaac through him. And if I'm not of the line of Abraham, I have no hope in the promises of God made to Abraham. Now, I know I've been told that's not the case, but it sure seems like that could be a possibility from this passage. In this passage, Abraham has doubted God's character and promised to be his shield. He doesn't own up to his sin but justifies it when it's exposed, not recognizing its severity, even after just looking down on the flaming ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. He acts in his own wisdom, based on past experience, perhaps not remembering it was God's grace that he got out of the last situation the way he did, not his cunning. And finally, he's once again not leading his household to do the right thing. He continues to damage his relationship with his wife by offering her to another man to protect himself. Almost reminiscent of our story of Lot, but not quite. And he displays this pattern of dealing with fear to his household, which we'll learn is later replicated by his offspring. This truly is a royal mess. It's like Abraham has done everything in his power through his sin to keep God's promise from happening. And don't we see that same thing in our lives? That's how we feel when that lust has left us coming home to an empty house and note on the counter. It's how we feel when we're let go for altering the numbers on that spreadsheet. It's how we feel when our card declines at the liquor store. We may wonder in these situations, am I disqualified from God's purpose in my life? But thankfully for us today, this first section is not the whole story. Given just this part, from our perspective, we think we can see what the outcome's going to be and that there's no hope. But God has another plan. So we're going to move on to section two of the passage, which I'm calling the hand of God. This is the beautiful truth about this passage today. It's not what we expect that happens, but what God wills. God does what Abraham should have done and reveals to the king that Sarah is Abraham's wife clearly before anything has happened between them. He furthermore takes the glory from Abimelech who thinks he should be saved because of his innocence by making clear he already knew what was in the mind of the king 
And that is only because he intervened and his mercy, Abimelech and his people are not dead. He says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. He also names Abraham as a prophet, clearly not giving up on him, and will not let Abimelech retaliate against him like we would expect. He tells the king, you won't be safe until Abraham prays for you. So Abimelech, future king of the Philistines, who we, the original readers, and Abraham all expect to do the wrong thing, quickly obeys God after God reveals what he could do and his mercy shown that he did not. He responds to God in their conversation not by saying, what are you going to do with him though? He did me worse than I did him. He pleads with God based on his character. Just like Abraham did before Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He even goes further by showing that same mercy he's been shown to Abraham by allowing him to repent when he says, what did you see to make you assume that Abimelech and his people were so wicked? And even when Abraham, the one who seems the one to blame in this situation, doesn't own up to his sin, Abimelech owns up to his own part in the mess when he admits to God in verse 5, even though his heart was innocent in it, I have done this. And after that, they don't just part in peace to places far away from each other. Abimelech and Abraham live in the same land, with Abraham getting the choice of where to live in his territory and also gifts. And even when, in a few weeks, we're going to read there's tension between the two, we see they're able to look past old wounds and deal well with each other. And it goes one step further. Abimelech makes very clear in a solemn and public manner, nothing sexual took place between him and Sarah. Building the confidence of the original reader as to their lineage being secure, as well as ensuring one day he would, the world would be blessed through the line of Abraham, just like he's promised. We end with God restoring the wombs of Abimelech's household, and we're going to begin next week with Sarah's womb being opened. It seems like everything we could only see going one way in today's passage goes the complete opposite. God restores not just what's been broken by the sin of Abraham, but works even this bad situation for his good, for the good of his offspring, and for the good of us, his spiritual offspring. So what can we take away from the story of man's flaws and God's work? that God still keeps his promises despite our worst failures. I believe that is the main point of this section, and that's the main point that God is trying to get across to Abraham as well. As a side note, there are lots of other things that this passage can teach us about how relationships damaged by sin can be restored about apologizing for your part in a situation even if the other person is unrepentant, about not trusting ourselves to know what is in the hearts of others or tell the future, and not trusting our past experiences to define what's right. 
Because those are all things we can take away from this passage, it was difficult at first for me to try to sift through them all and find the main point. But the underlying truth for all of these and for us today is the sovereignty of our promise-making, promise-keeping Father. So application one for us today is going to be believe it. Believe he keeps his promises. We often come to the Bible wondering, what can we do or how can I apply this? And although there are things that Scripture calls us to do or change in this passage and in others, we shouldn't overlook the value of simply learning more about who God is and who we are in relation to him. Knowing and glorifying God is of value for its own sake, not just because it makes some element of our life better. And today, the passage focused on how God kept his promises despite the terrible mess created by man that seemed like it would thwart it. Let's think about this for a minute. God works through anyone he wishes to accomplish his will and to keep his promises. This means the Abimelechs, the Babylons, the Justin Biebers, the Trumps, the Bidens, the Putins, the Zelenskys. Going one step further, he can use your flawed husband or wife or your young child or that boss you don't like. God can lead people to do the unexpected. And he does so again and again throughout his word. God can and will overcome any situation, even the ones of our own making, and use any person he wishes to accomplish his will, which is his glory and our salvation. We may think from the outside we know what's going on or what the natural end of things will be. We may think we know what's best based on our past experiences, but the only one who truly does is God, and all we can truly know about them is what he reveals about them to us. There's another application we can walk with, away with today as well, and that is submit to our promise-keeping God. Remember at the beginning, we discussed that we may be tempted to look at ourselves, where we've placed ourselves, and feel like our lack of faith and our sinfulness has brought us to a place with no way forward. And not only is that false for Abraham, it's false for us as well. Maybe you're in that boat today. Maybe you know you've messed it up and badly. Maybe you feel hopeless and like there's no way for God to restore what has been lost and do what he promised to do for his people, for you. Jeremiah 3.22 says, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. For you, submitting to God may look like confessing that sin, if it is hidden, and trusting him with the outcome, rather than thinking you know how it's going to end or how people will react, like Abraham was tempted to think. If it's not hidden, it may look like trusting God and seeking him rather than trying to hold together the broken pieces of your life, adding sin on top of sin or trying to justify your way out of it. 
I want to take a moment here to speak specifically to men. I want to point out that when God stops Abimelech and exposes the sin of Abraham, he still says he is a prophet. Our sin does not change the fact God is the one who defines what we are. Abraham is still a prophet, one who hears from God and declares that truth to others. He is still the line of promise, and he is still the leader of his household. He absolutely has done a bad job leading in this situation. But the right response is not to step down as leader of his household, letting Sarah take the lead, and submitting to public shame for the rest of his life like our culture would have him do. The right response is to step up, recognizing his sin and the consequences of it, and recognizing the positions God still calls him to going forward, whether he feels capable of them or not. You cannot let the world, your children, your wife, or you define who you are and how you are to lead, holding against you forever what you have done and repented and been forgiven for. If God has not given up on you, you don't get to. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There may be consequences, and there may be a lot of work ahead of you to get back on the road and headed in the right direction, leading your family well. But God gives us grace and strength and calls us to do so. So maybe you're on the other side. You haven't just messed up but you're believing in a lie and responding in pride, thinking you are beyond temptation and sin and have reached the point where you know everything. Maybe you're not being tempted right now because you haven't been back toward the Negev in a while, not because you've truly overcome it. Maybe you too are tempted to attribute your success in the past to you and your wisdom rather than giving God the glory. If Abraham, at 99, who all this has happened to, still has things to learn and sinful motivations to expose, so do you. So do I. We need to ask God to expose what those are and give us the strength to respond rightly to them. That's why James writes in James 1, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds.'" For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How would Abraham have known that he still had to grow in trusting God with his life if this hadn't been brought up? God may be able to overcome our sin, but that's not a reason to put ourselves in a position of prideful arrogance, letting it happen again. Or maybe you're in a third camp today. You know you're not perfect and you know that that temptation is still all too real. You know you're weak, and you're afraid of messing up. God does call us, as spiritual offspring of Abraham, to walk before him and be blameless. But you will never be able to fully experience sanctification and glorify God in your life if you rely on your own vigilance and aversion to sin rather than seeking to follow God. 
Our God not only leads us in righteousness, but constantly works in the world to make sure that you get there, despite all the ways you will mess it up. As Philippians 1 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For you today, submission may look like being honest with God about your fear and weakness and praying for him to lead you in knowing and trusting in him rather than in your own ability to keep you from sin. So as we get to the end of our passage and our applications for today, something may still be rubbing you wrong. We may be tempted to ask, did Abraham get away with it? Throughout scripture, we see our sovereign God responding to sin a few different ways. We do see earthly punishment for it, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve, the flood. However, in those situations and in our passage today, he also exposes it, is patient with sinners, gives unmerited opportunities to repent. Examples of this are the questions in the garden. Where were you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? We saw it again with Hagar in the wilderness, and we see it again with Sarah when she laughs. We saw it again with him visiting Sodom and Gomorrah rather than just blasting it to pieces before doing so. And we see it in Abimelech in today's story. See, we also receive natural consequences for our sins, like Abimelech losing face and wealth as the king in this situation. And I assure you, this kind of situation has an effect on the marriage of two people, but they got far less than what they deserved. Now, we know that we deserve to be justly judged by God, and that he doesn't do so right now is a mercy. As we read in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The ultimate example of God's mercy and grace is the cross, which God is actually working toward in today's passage by preserving the line of Abraham. It's where our sin is exposed, brought to light in the most violent way, and punished in a far more bloody and public way than Sodom and Gomorrah was, giving us an unmerited opportunity to repent. The justice will be done for us, for Abraham, for Abimelech, for that person who's hurt you most in your life. Either Christ takes the punishment in our place, or we will pay for it forever in hell. That is what the Bible teaches. And this truth is how we can forgive others more than Abimelech can. This is how we move forward after we mess up more than Abraham does. And this is the primary displayer of God's character, greater than any display Abraham was given to see in his lifetime. It's what we glorify God for both now in our lives and what we will glorify him for forever one day in heaven. You guys will pray with me.